Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Today is observed as Yom Hazikaron, La Shoah, Vilagvura, Holocaust and Heroism Remembrance Day, a day that is taken very seriously in Israel and around the world in Jewish communities as a day to remember the horrors of the Holocaust and stand, uh, stand beside those survivors the number of them getting fewer and fewer as we remember the horrors of the Shoah. You are listening to JM in the AM.
Oh, wow. 
massive inflation and unemployment. The country had to pay war reparations which pushed it into economic and social chaos. Hitler promised to solve these problems. He promised jobs and stability, and his solutions gave desperate German people hope for a more stable future. They went along with Hitler and let some of his anti-Semitic policies slide. In 1933, Jews made up less than 1% of Germany's population, yet in speech after speech, Nazi leaders led by Adolf Hitler maintained that the Jews were secretly everywhere, controlling everything. In 1933, the Nazi party takes power in Germany, democratically in an election. While we were going to school, we were second-class citizens. And we used to fight all the time with the Polish kids. The Poles, they could smell a Jew from a mile away. When we were young, we used to have bicycles on the road, took off our caps just like any Polish kid. Kids used to run out from their houses and used to call dirty Jews and throw rocks after us. They didn't even know us, but they knew we are Jews. We were dressed just like them. We were acting just like them. Naturally, there were some of them that they were decent, that helped, but without the Polish collaboration, Hitler could not accomplish what he did. After Bar Mitzvah, I lay twilling every time, and I do it up today. I promise in the camp when I survive, I will lay twilling, and I do it till now. Polish anti-Semitism. There were pogroms, beating up people on the streets in Poland. And we were already hardened, but I never gave up. For instance, we had the kibbutz. Friday night, we had services, we sang songs, and all of a sudden came the Poles and broke the windows, broke in and beat people. The police came only when it was too late. I said, next week, we do the same thing, but we will be outside, hidden. And when they come, we will attack them. And they came, and we beat them up, and from that time, no more. It was peace. 
With the support of German society and Adolf Hitler, Nazis boycott Jewish businesses, set up the first 10 concentration camps, burn books considered a threat to Nazi beliefs, ban Jews from working in government, ban Jews from being doctors in the National Health Service, ban Jews from teaching in public high schools and from studying in public high schools and universities. What you will see in the next testimonies is how slowly ever so slowly from 1933 through 1938, like a cloud approaching overhead that becomes a storm, Jews and many other, quote, undesirables lost all forms of freedom. By that time, we really began to feel a sense of isolation, a sense of being an outcast. And then the kids, you know, used to be friends, would taunt you. Uh, and there were certain cliche catchphrases that all the kids picked up from the environment, like a filthy Jew, dirty Jew, hook-nosed Jew. Kids, some of them didn't even know what they were saying, but it was just the popular thing to say. My mother took me to Hitler's birthday parade in Vienna, because I was such a pest and nuisance, because all my uh, friends got to go, my former friends and they got to form this cordon along the streets and everybody's all dressed up as like a big festive thing. That's the, uh, the only real rally, quote-unquote, I went to. This was the big cheese coming to town. Saw him between other people's legs, but I saw him. Well, you know, he had a feeling this person must be somebody extremely important. It's like, like a Cecil B. DeMille movie. You see Caesar entering. You had a feeling this was a person of that stature. Should have been his assassin, but uh, too young. I had the opportunity. I had the motive. But I didn't have the means. I had sometimes the invitations to the big official balls in Vienna, where it said at the bottom, we would prefer non-Jews or something like that, on two invitations. And when I got them, I used to say, you send me this invitation, you know I am Jewish. Why do you send me this invitation? And he says, but you are the Jew. No, we invite you because we want you there. 1935, university admission for Jews was completely eliminated. So my father said to us, kids, you have no other choice. You got to learn tailoring. It will save you from two things. You'll never get rich and you'll never starve. So I started to learn tailoring. Four brothers, we were all working in the shop, and we became very successful. We could smell the war around us. The relationship between myself and non-Jews became rarer and rarer as the time went on, because I think that they did not feel so safe to befriend the Jew. 
Also, it was not encouraged by the Jewish people either. We were not sure whether they were not spies for the police, and all these suspicions began to come about. One of the Nazi myths was that Jews never did any physical work and that Jews were sucking off the fat of the land. And so they would love to find Jews, especially Jewish women, with fur coats and men with business suits, people who used to be bankers and people who used to be lawyers and rabbis, forced them to do this menial work on the theory that we used to be maids in your homes and now we have a chance to see you cleaning up our, our city. In 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were put into effect, which took away Jews' basic freedoms. Not many could envision at that time that Nazis would attempt to murder all Jews, but one law after another was added. Eventually, 400 anti-Jewish laws would be written. Unfortunately, countries outside Germany, including the United States, had quotas which strictly limited Jewish immigration, leaving Jews who did not make the quota with no place to go for freedom. Jews became increasingly desperate. I think I never went to bed without saying, please, God, get me out of here. We knew that we would be killed. How we would be killed, we had no idea. I suppose we thought we would be lined up and shot because we knew of people who'd never come out of concentration camps. We knew of people who had been killed. I mean, there were more and more people one knew who were never seen again. And as things got worse and worse, my mother realized that the whole family had to be got out. My father was an extremely nice man, they both were, but I think she must have been the sort of go-getter of the two. And she decided that heaven and earth had to be moved to get us out. She did all the form filling and all the queuing, and she ran from office to office, and I have a record of all this and the door closed in her face and she banged on the door and she tried and tried and tried. And the fact I know that she made all this effort to save my life has been a big influence on me. J.M. in the A.M. on this Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, known as Yom HaShoah, observed as Israel's day of commemoration of the Holocaust. Approximately six million Jews perished as a result of the actions carried out by Nazi Germany and its accessories and a tribute to the Jewish resistance in that period as well. In Israel today is a National Memorial Day. Many of you are familiar with the siren that sounds on Yom HaShoah, uh, asking all in Israel to stand or stop in silence and remember the six million. Some of the people that um, <clears throat> you've been listening to in this narrative, uh, Voices of the Shoah, uh, include Eugene Heimler, who was born in Hungary in 1922, lived in the ghetto before his deportation, first to Auschwitz, then to Buchenwald and Truglitz camps, and then back to Buchenwald. During the death march to the Czechoslovakia border, he escaped, was taken by, to the partisans fighting the Nazis. He moved to England in 1947. Um, Shlomo Berger was born in 1919 and worked in his father's tailor shop until he escaped the oncoming German front and joined the partisans. He married, married Gusta Griedman in Romania prior to coming to America in 1950 and found work in the United States as a factory worker. <clears throat> Il Sinclair was sent to Middlesex, England on the Kinder Transport. Her parents escaped to Shanghai three years later. 
She eventually married and had three children. Just some of the people included in Voices of the Shoah, as we remember those who perished, and we um, continue to continue to fear the day when there will be no survivors to tell firsthand accounts of what occurred. And therefore, our own testimony, our own abilities to replay and retell what the survivors have told us becomes even more and more important. JM and the AM on this Monday morning, April the 24th, the 28th of Nisan, today being observed as Yom HaShoah. Normally, the 27th of Nisan moved one day, so it would not begin uh, too close to Shabbos. Today is day 13 in the counting of the Omer, one week and six days. Today is day 13 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. The atmosphere of the type of music that we are playing this morning will hopefully encourage all of us to stop and remember these six million and remember what type of day this is on Yom HaShoah 5777.
Oh, 
Why didn't you leave? That's the question my son all the time. He's an immigration attorney. You couldn't. They didn't let you. You couldn't. You just couldn't. Everybody was running away. They say that men, they should run. My father went with my cousin. He's a few years older than I. He took him and they went towards a Warsaw. And I remember my father came back. My mother said, why did you come back? Everybody goes to Warsaw. He said he was on the way, he saw, I remember like now, he saw a couch, and on the couch was a woman with two children, and the house was burning. 
And my father said, oh my gosh, I left my wife and four children. Where am I going? And he came back. I can remember very clearly the day that England came into the war. I know that I'd just had a letter from my parents saying that they were hoping to go to Holland. I can remember going upstairs into my bedroom and crying because I said, oh, war started and my parents won't be able to come and I won't see them. And Mrs. Fair saying, Vera, you're a very selfish little girl. It means a great deal more than this. It means that our boys will have to go into the army and all this, and you're a very selfish girl to be crying about yourself at a time like this. March 1938. Hitler annexed Austria to Germany. 500,000 people of Vienna lined the streets to welcome the Nazis, and all German laws were now applied to Austria. At the end of 1938, Kristallnacht, 150 synagogues destroyed, 7,500 businesses looted, 30,000 Jews rounded up and sent to concentration camps. Four months later, March 1939, Germany takes Czechoslovakia. On September 1st, 1939, Germany takes Poland. Two days after that, England and France declare war. 1939, Friday, September the 1st, about 5 o'clock in the morning. We wake up and there is bombarding the whole city. We thought that this is the Polish Air Force doing exercises. Germany attacked Poland. They demolished the Polish planes. They demolished oil refinery, and within an hour we found out that we are at war with Germany. An order came out from the Polish military authorities. All young people have to retreat together with the Polish army. So my younger brother and I and a group of other boys, we started to retreat on foot. And as we were going, the German planes kept attacking us. We walked for about 150 kilometers. Finally, we see that the German tanks are outrunning us. We start to go back. During our walk back home, we heard about the big massacres. The Ukrainians were a minority in Poland, and the first thing they did is they helped them kill the Jews. And when we came back, we started to realize what is happening. We just, we had to be afraid to go out to the street. The conversation in my home between my father and my uncle, Moishke, was, why do we have to run? They are used to work. They are not just business people. So they will take us to a camp. They won't kill us, what for? We are non-members of any party whatsoever. To leave our home and to run somewhere to search for a piece of bread and to risk our life, there is no reason for it. I'm a very tired, old and worn out man And my eyes have long been blind most things that people say to me 
just seemed to slip my mind Oh, but the suffering and painful times That were in years long gone Are still as clear upon my memory As the numbers on my arm What will become of all the memories Are they to scatter with the dust in the breeze Who will stand before the world Knowing what to say When the very last survivor
J.M. and the A.M. on this Yom HaShoah. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on our beloved on our beloved NSN app. And I thank all of you for listening in and being part of this broadcast. Galay Tzal in the background. This is how they are commemorating Yom HaShoah at the moment. We are assuming there will be a newscast at the top of the hour. Listening in to Galay Tzal from Israel on this Yom HaShoah on this Holocaust Remembrance Day here at JM in the AM. Galei Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast on this Monday. Yom HaShoah is next at JM and the מיד, יום הזיכרון לשואה ולגבורה בגל"צ. יום הזיכרון לשואה ולגבורה, תשע"ז, מיד בגל"צ, בקולם. צהל השעה שתיים, כנוע מבירה ממה שקורה עכשיו. על אדמת פולין יצא לדרכו בעוד כחצי שעה מצעד החיים ממחנה ההשמדה אושוויץ למחנה בירקנאו. מדווח שליחנו ניתאי הנבי. כעשרת אלפים משתתפים במצעד, רובם בני נוער מכ-40 מדינות ברחבי העולם, מלווים בניצולי שואה, נושאים דגלים, החלו לצעוד את שלושת הקילומטרים בין מחנה אושוויץ אחת לבירקנאו. בראש המצעד יצעדו הנכבדים, ובהם נשיאת בית המשפט העליון, הרמטכ"ל, השר החינוך נפתלי בנט, הרב לאו, שרי חינוך ממדינות אירופה. אנחנו נביא חלקים מהטקס המרכזי כאן בגל"צ. הנה כמה מבני הנוער שהגיעו מרחבי העולם להשתתף במצעד. עכשיו שאני פה, אני, יש לי כוח, יש לי את הדגל ישראל, כי ישראל זה... זה הבית שלי. תמיד זוכרים את כל מה שעברו את סבא שלי. זה מאוד עצוב להיות פה ולראות את כל מה שעברו את כולם. הטקס המרכזי במוזיאון יד ושם בירושלים, לכל איש יש שם, הסתיים לפני זמן קצר. כתבנו ניר שוויד שמע שם בן לניצולים שאמר קדיש בשם הדור השני. עוד בחדשות, ראש ארגון הפשע אמיר מולנר זוכה מעבירות הפרעה לשוטר במשפט שבו ייצג את עצמו, מדווח כתבנו איתמר קציר. מולנר הואשם כי הפריע לשוטרים שניסו להיכנס לביתו ובהם הקצין המורשע ערן מלכה. במהלך המשפט ייצג העבריין הבכיר את עצמו ותחקר על דוכן העדים את חוקרי המשטרה ומלכה ביניהם. בית המשפט קיבל את טענותיו של מולנר והזיכה אותו מהאישום. 
בית המשפט המחוזי בירושלים הרשיע את בעל בית הקפה פריז בעיר אלעד ורון בביצוע מעשה סדום ומעשה מגונה בשתי מלצריות שהעסיק. כתבתנו דור מימון. אלעד ורון, בעל בית הקפה המפורסם ברחוב בלפור ובעל בר הצעצוע בעיר, הורשע בביצוע המעשים בשתי מלצריות שעבדו תחתיו תוך ניצול יחסי מרות. השופטים דחו את טענתו, לפיה ניהל עם העובדות קשר רומנטי. אחת המתלוננות סיפרה כי שפכה את ליבה בפני ורון, וסיפרה לו על אונס שעברה בעבר, והוא ניצל את חולשתה וביצע במעשה מגונה. השופטים קבעו כי עדותה אמינה והרשיעו את ורון פה אחד. הבחירות בצרפת, פרנסואה פיון. מועמד הימין החשוד בשחיתות שלא העפיל לסיבוב השני זכה ב-60% מקולות המצביעים בישראל. מועמדת הימין הקיצוני מרין לפן קיבלה 3% בלבד. כתבתנו אליל שחר. מנתונים שהעביר השגרירות צרפת בישראל עולה כי רק 8,434 מתוך מעל 57,000 בעלי זכות בחירה בישראל יצאו אתמול להצביע בבחירות לנשיאות בצרפת. 60% מהקולות הלכו לפיון, 30% למקרון. שלושה אחוזים וחצי למרי לפן ופחות משני אחוזים למלנשון. מיד אחרי החדשות, המשדר המרכזי של גל"צ ליום השואה בקולם, המתעד מפגשים אישיים בין ניצולי שואה לבין חיילי גלי צה"ל, ביניהם סיפורו של אברהם מרגלית. מה שאנחנו עברנו בטרנסניסטריה זה כבר עדיף היה בגז אם לגמור אותך. אי אפשר לתאר את זה, זה היה בית חרושת למוות. ולסבל תמידי. אלה שהיו באושוויץ לפחות קיבלו חתיכה לחם. ותחזית מזג האוויר למחר, הטמפרטורות תהיינה נמוכות מהרגיל לעונה. אלה החדשות שעורכת קרן בן מרדכי.
Yizkareim, done by the Shira Chadasha Boys Choir. Yom HaShoah morning at 10 minutes after 7 o'clock live here at JM in the AM, uh, the Nachum Single Network Studios in New York. And I thank you all for tuning in. Uh, thank those who are listening in on our phone line. Thank those who are listening in on our app, those listening in on the computer, those listening in on Bluetooth through their cars, uh, system, whatever the case may be. Uh, whether you're listening on the archive, that could be a possibility as well. You might be listening later on today or at some other point. I thank you for listening in to our JM and the AM Yom HaShoah tribute. Today is Yom HaShoah V'Hag Buraz. We pay tribute and remember to six million. In Israel, of course, a siren has sounded. Uh, there's a new app, by the way, according to Jerusalem Post, a new app that lets you be alerted when the siren goes off in Israel, whether it be Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron. Um, the new app helps diaspora Jews and supporters of Israel commemorate Holocaust Remembrance Day anywhere in the world by letting them listen into the siren as it sounds in Israel. The app is called Stand Still, uh, done by two people in collaboration with the Foundation for the Benefit of Holocaust Victims of Israel and the Lone Soldier Center in memory of Michael Levin. So that is a... Um, that is a new innovation for five seven seven seven. March of the Living is happening in Europe. Many of you are familiar with the the program that has been around for a, quite a while already. Education and Diaspora Affairs Minister Naftali Bennett is in Poland. He'll participate. He is participating in the annual March of the Living in memory of the Holocaust. Bennett told reporters for about a thousand years there was a vibrant Jewish community in Krakow, Poland that was wiped off the earth about 70 years ago. We're here because lately there has been a growing tendency of Holocaust denial and in the era of and in the era of social networks it will be easier to deny the Holocaust. He said we're nearing the day when the last survivor will depart. He said Israel invited 12 education ministers from across Europe to participate in the March of the Living in order to ensure that the memory of the Holocaust never dies. Israel commemorates Holocaust Remembrance Day with a memorial observance at Yad Vashem. Further observances today at the Knesset in schools and military bases and other public institutions. And of course, the two-minute siren was scheduled and did sound at 10 a.m. this morning in the Holy Land. J.M. in the A.M. on this Holocaust Remembrance Day. It is Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. I thank you all for tuning in. Let us utilize this opportunity today to remind our children and grandchildren, to remind some of the adults that we know, and to remind our families and friends that we are nearing a point where there will be no survivors to tell the story, and it will be completely our responsibility to do so. A very important message on this Yom HaShoah. More coming up on JM and the AM. Voices of the Shoah takes us back to a period of time uh, during World War II in the 20th century with some of the testimonies of those who survived here at JM and the AM. The Germans start to register us. All Jews, young men, from 18 to 45, on a certain day, you come to the railroad station and you will go to work for us. 
A day before the transport supposed to go, I said, I'm not going. I took a friend of mine, dressed up, got on the train, went through South Germany, through Austria, to the Yugoslavian border. And here we got out of the train full of German military. Not one asked us who we are. We were very well dressed, and here, right from the train, we go up in the mountain. We marched all night with the suitcases. We saw the border lights, and there comes this Yugoslavian soldier. We gave him to understand we are Polish officers. He took us down to the border garrison, and here the officers interrogated us where do you want to go? We want to go to France to join the Polish Legion to fight the Germans. He said, oh, you can go where you want to. He gave us a Yugoslavian soldier to lead us to the station. He was a German spy. As he said to take us to the station, he took us to the border and handed us over to the Germans. They arrested us. They took me with a guard on the train a big gate on top of the sign, Arbeit macht frei, Labor makes you free, Sachsenhausen. And this was in October 39. And this way I became not only Jew, but the first Pole in a German concentration camp. Very young and all alone 
one visions of a shtetl What's vivid and clear Began to fade and all but disappear Shema, Shema Yisroel Know that there is but one God above When you feel pain, when you rejoice Know how it longs to hear your voice Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem The winds of war had finally passed One man took on the sacred task To bring the scattered Jewish children home He traveled far from place to place A quest to reignite the faith Of those sent into hiding long ago He entered the fortress gray and cold Your kind is not among us was told Hashem above he whispered please don't let me fail as he began to sing Shema Yisroel Shema Shema Yisroel know that there is but what God above Yeah.
is a selection from the Heritage Symphonic Music Series conducted with uh, members of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, a piece called Occupation, a reflection on some of the songs of the era in the early part of World War II. It is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Today is Yom HaShoah here at JM in the AM. And I thank you very much for tuning in and being part of our broadcast and understanding the importance of it. Uh, I want to commend those who, uh, those synagogues and those organizations and institutions that have made sure to schedule and uh, present Yom HaShoah commemorations. I want to quote my friend Simon Jacob, who many of you know, who uh, earlier this morning on Facebook wrote, it's truly amazing to be in a country that commemorates the Shoah the wail of the sirens echoing across the land, and the knowledge that no family here is immune from loss. You honestly can't help but stop and cry. Well said. And um, Simon, of course, now in Jerusalem and uh, observing what it's like to be part of a Yom HaShoah commemoration, a Yom HaShoah observance throughout the entire land. It is intense. It is necessary. And it is something that we have to continue to pass on to the next generation as the number of survivors continues to dwindle. <clears throat> and their story will not be told by them anymore. It will be told by us and our children and grandchildren. JM and the AM, I thank those of you who are listening in from around the world on Yom HaShoah morning. Uh, it is a day that we reflect and we present a program that is um, appropriate for this Holocaust Commemoration Day. I want to thank Mayor Weingarten. He has uh, just uh, minutes ago completed a um, one-hour Israel show appropriate for Yom HaShoah. He is in Israel. He is in Jerusalem. And he has just completed a one-hour Israel show, which will air between uh, 9 and 10 a.m. Eastern Time this morning here at the Nahum Siegel Network, right after JM in the AM. The Israel show is each and every week. Today he has prepared, just minutes ago, he has prepared a special broadcast, a special program for Yom HaShoah. And we will uh, get an opportunity to hear that after JMNAM this morning. Again, a big thank you and a recognition to those who have uh, made sure to include programming in their own communities, synagogues, and organizations on this Yom HaShoah appropriate for the day. Rabbi Goldwasser's words uh, about the Sefira Omer comes up next. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas HaRav Zeb, and Rabbi Yosef Alevi, and Zechonishmas Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We're going to be continuing with our series on Sefira HaOmer. HaGoyen Rav Chaim Shmuel Levitz explains that the Nevi'im, the prophets of Klal Yisrael, attained their lofty position 
with great work and serious effort in the practice of Avodah Hashem. As a result, they were able to transform their essence and achieve an elevated level of spiritual refinement. However, those that stood on the edge of the Yamsuf immediately after Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, they merited the revelation of Hashem in a different way. There wasn't any great personal struggle. There wasn't any great exertion that made them worthy of the vision. For this reason, Hashem waited seven weeks before giving the Jewish nation the Torah. He wanted to allow B'nai Yisrael the needed time to change their essence in order that they could be appropriately prepared to sincerely accept the yoke of Torah. Rabbi Yechesko Levinson comments that the most remarkable miracle is when an individual can defeat his own temperament. Even the experience of the greatest Nisim, the miracles, will not accomplish that which his personal toil can to defeat his own personal habits or expunge his undesirable midos. Rav Chaim Falaji cites the Shalah that Sfira Sa'omer is imbued with a spirit of great holiness. It is therefore an especially auspicious time for each of us to inspire our hearts with deep kavana in order that we may ascend the spiritual levels. The Rashash and the Ariya Kodesh both emphasize the significance of the days of Sfiros Oimer. The Rashash defines this period of time as the core of all the days of the entire year. The way in which we conduct ourselves during this time span will define the days of the rest of the year. And therefore, it's important to be mindful that our Avodah Hashem is precise and correct during these days. The Sefer Oitzra Satorah recounts the story of Amaskil, who questioned the Maggid of Kelm about his drosha, his speech. He said, I believe in the concepts that you talked about. There is reward and punishment. There's Gan Eden, there's heaven, and there's Gehenna. But if I could see the Gehenna on the table, I would surely listen to your words, and even I would do tshuva, I would repent. The problem is, that I only see Olam on the table. I only see this world. I am only familiar with Gehenim from your speeches. The Magid then reproached him. He said, Even if I could put Gehenim inside your mouth, you wouldn't do tshuva. Like Chazal tell us, even on the doorstep of Gehenim, the evil will not repent. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Oh,
Yom HaShoah morning, Holocaust Remembrance Day here at JM in the AM. Reminder, today is day 13 in the counting of the Omer, one week and six days. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. We commemorate and remember the six million and the heroism of Jews during World War II on this Yom HaShoah at JM in the AM. Rumors were going that they're going to build a ghetto. But you know, we school kids, what we knew about ghetto, Middle Ages. But they're not going to make it. It's not Middle Ages, 20th century. They're not going to do it. I mean, no. What is a ghetto? What do you mean they're going to put us where? But let me tell you, they took this street, that street. You have to go, you have to go. You went and that's it. We went to the ghetto. We were allocated one little small room for six people, 160,000 people and one and a half square mile. All Jews, 160,000 Jews, surrounded by barbed wire, German soldiers with machine guns and guards with dogs. So came August the 9th, 1942. It was on a Sunday morning. A daughter came out, placed all over on every house and through the Judenrat, that all Jews, all, nine o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, they have to come up to the marketplace for registration. Can take with you 25 pounds of luggage and to leave all the houses open. Anybody that will be caught will be shot. Panic started. They started to run. One started to run to the other to try to find out. Nobody knew what's going on. The Judenrat wouldn't say anything. The Jewish police wouldn't say anything. My friends wouldn't say anything. Nobody knew what was going to happen. My parents were still home. We were still four brothers. My sister, her husband, and two girls, two children, one of 12 and one of eight. Some Jews went into hiding, took a chance. Our whole family came out to that marketplace for registration. Everybody had to line up and wait. By 10 o'clock, trucks started to come with Ukraine SS and circled around all the people, made a ring all the way around. They started to separate old people and the rest of the people. They loaded up about 10 trucks of old people, which included my father, and they drove away. Must have been about, yeah, about four or five hundred people. And within two hours, they came back empty. We found out later that the mass grave was prepared about 15 kilometers from us in a forest. They took all the Jews over there and they mowed them down with machine guns and killed them all there in this grave.
JM in the AM from the Heritage Collection of Music, appropriate uh, songs of the Holocaust on a Yom HaShoah morning here at JM in the AM. 12 minutes before the hour. Thanks for joining us from around the world. Don't forget Mayor Weingarten at 9 a.m. Eastern time with an Israel show prepared earlier today in in Israel commemorating Yom HaShoah. Mayor Weingarten with the Israel show commemorating Yom HaShoah that's going to be happening this uh, morning, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right after J.M. in the a.m. The siren has sounded in Israel. Yom HaShoah is in, is in session in all the appropriate places. Yad Vashem ceremony, the Knesset has ceremonies in Israeli schools. There are ceremonies. Of course, March of the Living is taking place in Europe as we speak. And um, everybody in the Holy Land, and I hope in places around the world as well, are commemorating the six million in their memory with a Yom HaShoah observance, just like we're doing here at JM in the AM. And I thank all of you who are tuned in. Plenty more coming up between now and 9 a.m. on this Yom HaShoah morning. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
friend, his name was Nagel, he worked in a German store, and he had connections with a printer making stamps for the Gestapo. He made up a counterfeit stamp, and he made false documents, Polish documents, for me, for my brother, for him, and for somebody else over there. And we decided when the time comes, we are going to run away. One day he comes in and he says that that was the first part of December, 1942. And he says, something is happening. What's happening? He says, too many Gestapos from old towns are coming in. We decided that we are not going back to the ghetto. We are going to hide overnight to see what is going to happen. I ran out to the pole that had our shop. I came into his house and I says, I got to sleep over here tonight. He didn't want me to. I almost forced him into it. I says, I'll sleep in the attic. The rules were if anybody that will hide a Jew will be shot. In the morning, he goes to town and he comes back two hours later and he says, the ghetto is surrounded. They're killing the Jews. They're taking them out. They're liquidating the ghetto. And I want you to leave. And he says, I'm not going to leave now. Not at daytime. He says, I'm going to throw you out. You throw me out, and I'm going to tell him that if I get caught, that you hit me overnight. I blackmailed him. Got dark. I went through the fields to the next to a little village. No baggage, no luggage, nothing. Just that little piece of paper. And I went to the train, bought a ticket, and I boarded the train. That room was travel fest, and we heard that the ghettos are being liquidated. And then, of course, came the, when they, the day that they killed all the children. I was at that day in like a hospital. I hurt my foot and I got an infection and I was in one of the barracks. A week before, Eichmann came and he said he wanted to know exactly how many children are in this camp because they don't get enough milk, so he would bring a cow. And so he counted the children and a week later, two trucks came and the children were playing and they took all the children, put them in the trucks and none of us ever know what happened to the children. And the night when the women came from the work and the children were not at the gate, I still can hear the screams, the screams. When I was freed, I worked uh, a short time in a place where they killed cattle and sheep, and every time the sheep cried, I could hear the mother screaming when the children were taken.
JM in the AM. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on our beloved NSN app. That is music from Heritage. Michael Isaacson with the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra recreating some of the very well-known selections of a very difficult period of time in Jewish history, speaking, of course, about the Shoah and World War II. You've been hearing some of the testimonies from Voices of the Shoah, which we play on an annual basis here at JM and the AM, as many, many observances are happening around the world. And, of course, in Israel, the centerpiece of the Yom HaShoah activities, uh, the siren has sounded, um, Yad Vashem, the Knesset, many schools, all in uh, commemoration mode, so to speak, in the memory of the Six Million and in honor of Jewish heroism of uh, World War II. And the uh, March of the Living is happening as we speak with many people visiting Europe participating in the march, and uh, soon to uh, end up, um, rightfully so, in Israel uh, to commemorate Yom HaZikaron next Monday and Yom HaTzmoot on Tuesday of next week. Uh, one of the things that um, we have always spoken about each and every year is the importance of keeping the story and the uh, events, the accounts of the Holocaust alive as survivors continue to pass away. And this has become our responsibility. Um, one of the people who has been outspoken on this issue is our guest this morning, and that's Leon Goldenberg, our good friend, who has uh, his own family history and story when it comes to World War II. And in addition, can speak uh, to every aspect of our community about the importance, and to every part of our community, about the importance of remembering the Shoah and passing on these uh, messages and tales to the next generation and then the next generation. Leon Goldenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me once more. I appreciate you being here, and today is a, uh, a little bit of a different day. In, instead of speaking about some of the current, uh, present uh, causes that are happening in the Jewish world, instead of um, motivating people to take action uh, when it comes to uh, the world of politics or other things that are happening in our community, today is a day where we're asking people to remember. We're asking people to... Uh, uh, to keep memories alive from just a few decades ago because soon uh, these survivors are all going to be gone. You have your own family story uh, that is quite a poignant one and really one of, one, one, one could say one of miracles, right? There's no question about it. There's no question that every survivor, if you talk to them and you will ask them, they will tell you clearly at this point there's no question that God saved me. I heard a... a I went to visit a cousin of mine who's actually in Poland right now. Yeah. She's 90 years old. Her name is Gisela Sikowitz, or Gitu Sikowitz as we know her. Um, she actually went, invited her, her, one of her closest friends, Brunia Brandman from New York, from Borough Park, to join her. Also she, around 90 years old? She's a youngster, 86. <laughs> 86 years old, yeah. Right. Um, she went with the friends of the uh, IDF. Right, FIDF. FIDF. And she's really going there to speak to them. She actually went, she told me, it must have been very interesting, on an Air Force jet with high-ranking officers. And from think, Israel. From Israel. And if you saw, they brought the first Sefer Torah that came to the Kotel, which just must have been 50 years ago. must have been also an amazing sight, especially Shavuos, when, when 200,000 Jews marched in that was the culmination because that was again going to be another Holocaust. But let's get back to the Holocaust. Yeah. She she just told me some of the 
the story. She was on a movie, and one of the pe- one of the parts of the movie was they asked four people, people that were from before and stayed from, people that were not from and, st- and became from, and people that were uh, n- religious and became non-religious, and people that were non-religious and stayed non-religious. So she said the one that was not religious told the story how she was hiding and running in, in Poland, and she was on a roof somewhere. She tripped, and she looked down. It was a Sefer Torah. The Sefer Torah, she's not a, a religious woman at all, and she picked up the Sefer Torah, and she carried w- it with her throughout the entire war. And she said that Sefer Torah saved her life. Very strange stories, but everybody, everybody can tell you. My mother... Uh, who was uh, nifter a year and a half ago when she came into Auschwitz? She had a young sister, 12 years old, that she was crazy about. And when they walked in, my oldest aunt, who just passed away a few months ago, uh, Fagel Epovitz, who had a bunch of write ups in, uh, in Hamodia, she. So when they came. This is in, your mother's oldest sister? Oldest sister, right, right. If you came to pay a shiva call and you went downstairs, uh, she was sitting downstairs. She couldn't come upstairs. Uh, but she passed away at 101 and three quarters, uh, <laughs> fully, you know, uh, her mind was fully with her. But when my mother came in, she had, my aunt had been married before the war, so she came earlier. And my mother and three sisters came in with my mother, with my grandmother, and the other two sisters were older, like my mother. They were from 20 to 30 years old, the four sisters later on. But the youngest one was 12 years old. And when my mother walked in, she was holding the hand of this younger sister because this was her Liebling. How old was your mother at the time? My mother uh, was 28. Wow. And of the two older sisters, the two other sisters mm-hmm. were sent to the right to live. And my mother, of course, she was holding on to the hand of, of her sister who's holding on to her mother, or as my grandmother, mm-hmm. were sent to the left. And a Polish Jew comes over to my mother, and he says, You stupid Hungarian girl. Don't you understand? She didn't. Why would she? He'd been there already for years. He knew what was going on. And he grabbed her, and she said, with anger, and he flew her the other way. And she was so angry, you tore me away from my little sister, my little shepherd. How could you tear me away? You tore me away from my mother. It was only later that she realized that she never knew who he was, that he saved her life. He saved her life by flipping her the other way. And uh, one of the sisters got typhus, and somehow she healed. It's an unbelievable thing how she could have healed in, in, in this kind of an environment. Did three sisters survive? Four. Four sisters, right. right. The one that uh, Feigedet was the oldest, and they were known as the Fierschwestes in, in Auschwitz and later on. And uh, uh, they, were, they, they were older, they were between 20 and, and 30. And the barracks that they went in had about 35 to 40 young girls, 14, 15, 16 years old. And one of them who my, I just had a granddaughter named after my mother and aunt, Chaya Feigedet. And this woman's name had to be Chaya Fagel also. <laughs> and she was a young girl, and she told, told us, uh, as a matter of fact, the family made a, a video. Uh, she just passed away also. And she told us that when she was in the bunk, everybody thinks everybody got bread and soup. Not everybody got bread. 
Only the people in front of the line got bread. My oldest aunt, who had come earlier, was in the front of the line, and she got a slice of bread. The other three sisters didn't. So she took the slice of bread and she cut it into four. And the four sisters survived on one slice of bread and the soup that they got. And this woman said that she was, she was actually a very thin woman when she passed away. She said, I was skinnier then. It's hard to imagine. And she said, I wasn't getting the bread. And I couldn't survive. And I collapsed in the bunk. And your mother picked me up. And she carried me to the bunk and she hid me. It was hard, it, hard to imagine. I was so skinny that they were able to put me by the barracks and throw a blanket over me to look like nobody was there. And that one slice of bread that the four sisters were sharing, they gave me until I recovered. Hmm. And she said that the four sisters watched, they were the mother hens for these 35, 40 young girls. When they left Auschwitz and when they went to Nuremberg to Siemens to work, you know, at a nice uh, high... Uh, uh, you know, very well-known place, mm -hmm. uh, which was in Munich, and they were pretty much all went together, and she watched them there also, and she said, the bombs started to fall one day. And there were two incredible stories. The bombs started to fall, and she was scared. She was young. She was very scared, and she saw my aunt, and she ran to my aunt, and when my aunt hugged her, she knew that she would survive the bombing and she would survive the war. And this aunt over there, believe it or not, in, in Nuremberg, they treated them a little better because they wanted them to work on the munitions. So they put a drop of meat into the soup. Mm. So my aunt, as Feigelevich, refused to eat the soup. She subsisted on the bread, on the slice of bread that she was getting. She refused to eat the soup. My other aunt, who is uh, still alive, uh, Irene Rosenshine, Yitta Rosenshine, I uh, went to pay a call. Uh, she's out in Colorado, and she said, it's hard for us to really understand, but when it came Pesach, and she kept track of the days, my aunt, she said she was not going to eat hummus. So she was not eating the soup, and she was not going to eat the bread. But it seemed that this aunt Yitta was a, uh, she was a beautiful woman, and she used her beauty to get her wiles. And she managed to get a coat, and she cut out the pockets of the coat. And at different times, she would go near the kitchen, and she would pick up a turnip here and a turnip there, and she would throw it into the coat. And they had two reasons uh, that they also went, they would pick up the Peels from the beets. Mm. Because my aunt taught the girls not to eat those peels, but to rub them into your cheeks so you have some color. Leon Goldenberg's here at Tilmashtoa. Two things I must ask you. The first is, uh, as we speak about remembrance and passing on this message, would you consider your mother to be a survivor who spoke about these things? Did my mother was... From the beginning? No, from my, let me just finish this. Sure. So my aunt subsisted on these turnips at the other aunt, and that's what she had on Pesach. My mother, my father never spoke. My father had a, uh, a wife and five children. Nobody survived. No one survived. And therefore, and my mother used, told me years later, they used to wake up every single night 
screaming the names of his children. We never saw that. We, ne we just saw a peaceful house, a loving father, a giving person, a person who, after the war, when, when he had a son that was 14, 15, that didn't survive, and there were a bunch of 14, 15-year-old boys that did survive, and he had a hard time looking at them. But it's hard. What happened to these kids? What happened? When you were young, they put you in an orphanage. Right. When you were 17, 18, they would try to send you to the few yeshivas that were Somewhat on your own, right? If you were 14, 15, you were completely on your own. Right. They couldn't control you. And these boys had formed a gang. And they formed this gang, and my father watched them. And they were stealing and robbing to survive, not... Mm -hmm. But as, as the... And my father never told us a story, but... Uh, well, he's not a young man either anymore. He's about 87, 88. Mr. Friedman told me the story. He says, what your father saw, what we were up to, and he knew it was no good. So he took us, four of us, into his house. Don't think he had some sort of a mansion. <laughs> and he sent us on our way. So he was a loving and giving person, but he never spoke to us. But my mother, when the uh, Eichmann trials happened, right. she sat there watching him all day long. She Every sat. night there was an hour special or something that, right. that aired, right? And I would come home from Yeshiva, and I would sit next to her, and she would uh, actually feed me at the, at the TV because she was not walking away. And she started to see what Eichmann said, following orders, it wasn't so much, we didn't kill, we didn't this. And she says, they didn't, they didn't. And that's when she started to open up. And she never I mean, this is the early talking. 1960s. 1961. And she never stopped talking, but not in a way that, look what I went through. Right. In a way, we must remember. Right. Know what happened. You must know what happened, and you must give it over. It's not something that's going to start now and end now. You need to know she was never negative. How'd your parents meet? Uh, after the war, my uh, mother was in, a, in one DP camp in Germany. And my father was another one, and somebody came by, and my father decided it was time to get remarried, which is an extraordinary yeah, thing. Yeah, boy. Who could even think of that? And somebody came through the camp, and he said, uh, do you know anybody who would take me? I had five children. Not everybody wants to marry somebody with children. And he says, you know what? There's, uh, there's four Zichman girls. One is married. One is already older. She's 20. By this time, she was already 30. Maybe uh, maybe she would take you. She's ready, an older girl. Same problem then as they have today. <laughs> <laughs> Under different circumstances. So my father said, uh, maybe go make the shidduch for me. He says, I'm going to Palestine. You have to go yourself. And my father went to the other DP camp, and he met with the president of the DP camp, who happened to be very, very close to my uncle, and he made the shidduch. How soon after was the wedding? Uh, after they met, they, they didn't... Uh, was the wedding in the DP camp? Yes, in the DP camps, and two of my brothers were born in the DP camps. Wow. Leon Goldenberg is here. Uh, my, the other thing is, and one of the reasons I asked you to be here this morning, because I think it's so vital, um, we continue, it's now 2017, and we as a community, and I know there are plenty of problems in our community worldwide, obviously, including financial problems, but we as a community 
continue to live in relative luxury, to say the least. And that luxury, I mean, someone said the other day, uh, I was listening to a lecture and they said, you know, the poorest person in America has an iPhone. You know, like, right. you know so we, we are at a different level. I think there are 200 Pesach programs. Right. That oh, gives you an idea. A lot of someone, someone said to me when we're in Israel, someone says to me, I wonder if more meat is being consumed by the Pesach programs around the world or by everybody in the state of Israel over Pesach? I said, you know, that's actually an interesting question. It could be, it could be very close. Anyway, I say this because as we find it not only impossible to believe, every generation finds it impossible to believe or every person of every age finds it hard to believe. Uh, but the, the, but, but all of this, all of these types of stories, episodes, things that your mother told you, you know, every day as you watch the Eichmann trial, um, it, it becomes further and further away and people can't even really, how is it possible? Can we even imagine a police force that would cooperate in throwing us out of our homes? Can we even imagine that we have seconds to decide if we're ever going to see our children again or not? It's mind boggling. And because it's so mind boggling, people can't, we cannot relate to it at all. We, there's clearly, it's very difficult to relate. It really is. And that's why it's important for the second generation, which I am, who heard the stories firsthand and it's very nice listening to the tapes, but you don't get the same inflection from the tapes always that you do from, from having heard the stories. Right. And that's why it's critical that the second generation takes up and recognizes that it's now our turn. I mean, my cousin's from the youngest. She's 90 years old. She's going to Poland. She was in Poland with a student group before uh, Pesach. I mean, hopefully she can do it for another 30 years. And she said, as long as I can do it, you know, she's going six, seven times a year with different groups to Poland. Wow. She's an incredible woman. But she's 90 years old. So the groups try to take a survivor with them. They try to take a survivor, and she's always willing. And when she went, she went to Germany. Uh, she was asked to speak in Germany. And uh, when she was there, the woman said, to her, oh, by the way, there's a Jewish day school. Can you speak there? She said, speak in front of a Jewish day school? Of in course. Germany. In Germany. And so she went for two days to Germany, and she's, you know, and she's 90 years old and she's tired. No, nope. they want to hear, I'm going to speak. And she went, and she's actually fluent in, uh, she's not German, but she's fluent in German. She's fluent in Hungarian, English, uh, and Yiddish, and who knows what else. Right. So she spoke in front of a German group in German. And it was just, uh, you know, she's just an incredible person. But the fact is, it's now our responsibility as a second generation, especially for those that have heard the stories. There are people that grew up in homes where it was completely verboten. You didn't speak about it. But if you heard the stories and you know the stories, you have to give them over. And for those grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that still have grandparents and great-grandparents, it's your responsibility to sit with them and to hear. They want to give it over. Once every one of them, no matter what, no matter when they started to speak about it, some of them didn't start till in their 80s, they want you to know what they went through, and they want you to know why they remained religious Jews, and they want you to know how important it is that you don't forget. So I say it to the grandchildren and to the great-grandchildren you have the opportunity to have the last embers of life in these people the youngest one 86 she's probably mm -hmm. one of the youngest survivors that that went through auschwitz 
She was Polish. She was four years in Auschwitz. She came to Auschwitz at 11. You need to talk to them. She's 86. You need to hear from them. There are very few Polish survivors. They couldn't last that long. But there still are Hungarian survivors. Talk to them. Listen to them. They want you to understand. They want you to understand how they survived, what they went through, what they lost, as my uh, cousin told me. Um, when she went to Germany, she said, uh, they asked her, Do you ha uh, was it a tape, whatever it was, mm -hmm. do you have questions? She says, yes, I have questions. My uncle, who I have to be named after, had 11 children, 60 members of his family. Not one person survived. I think that's why my father felt he was a rabbi in the town, that it was important to name after him. Not one single child, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, grandchild, completely wiped out. They want you to know about these people. They want you to give those names in, and it's important to give all the names in. So that, and there's no question it's more than six million, because they already have over four million names. How many Jews were taken out and just shot down? Where they took with no records. Towns with no records. Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yom HaShoah Hagvurah. Today is the day to remember. Every day is the day to remember, but you know what I mean. Uh, set aside by the state of Israel as the official day of remembrance for the uh, Holocaust. Um, one of the things we do when we play our recordings is we get an opportunity to hear about life before the war, as your mother was preparing for Pesach, would she tell you what life was like preparing for Pesach before the war? Well, my mother was actually born at the Seder. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, they sat down to the Seder. They were uh, three older siblings, and my grandmother said to my grandfather, go reef the shuchinta, call the neighbor. <laughs> she went into the bedroom, and believe it or not, two hours later she came out and she said to my grandfather, let's finish the Seder. <laughs> <laughs> different time now the only thing that my mother could never tell me or my aunt is that my grandmother have to serve <laughs> <laughs> that's unclear huh? that's unclear <laughs> but they were four older sisters and my grandmother trained them all to be balbusters to be cooks take care of a house and everything and every week another one of the sisters was given the job cook for the house under the tutelage of my grandmother mm -hmm. and my so I said oh so then the rest of you uh, sat out in the sun he said no the rest of us were sent out to people that there was no wife sometimes it was a shave brachas they would go out to cook for people there were always other people dysfunctional families that that were that needed somebody to go in what city were they in? Kira house it's, it's it's technically not hungry. Um, it's what you know uh, euphemistically call the border. Mm -hmm. um, the ever changing border. The ever changing border. Um, it was hungry when she was born, and then it became Czechoslovakia, and then it became Hungary again, then it became the Soviet You've Union. You've been there or not? I've been there. Yeah, you know, yeah. I had. Uh, I'm in one way. I was lucky. I had three grandparents that had Kurishes. Um, and only that grandmother that went to Auschwitz died there. Uh, but I only have one grave left. My uh, father's father, who passed away in 1927, so his uh, his grave is intact. And his mother passed away 
in Kislev 43. He actually had a daughter named after her. And, but there was no money for Mateva. So we don't know exactly where she is, but we do know that she was buried. And my mother's father, they had killed one of my uncles when they told him he had a bad heart and he passed away. And they did put up Mateva next to four grandparents. Mm. Whereas I had uh, four generations of grandparents buried right next to the other. Actually, his, uh, my, my grandmother's parents. Right. But that was his uncle. And, but it's completely destroyed. I found the stones uh, in houses, in foundations, in gardens. They completely destroyed that cemetery. Mm. What is it? Uh, what goes through your mind now? You mentioned your your aunt's opportunity to speak in Germany. What goes through your mind now when you see the what they call the revitalization of Jewish life in places like Germany and Eastern Europe? I think I just see the hand of of God, Yad Elohim. At the end of the day, how can you imagine? But if you look at German history, and there were hundreds and hundreds of years ago that said that, uh, I forget who was, one of the great Gadam, I don't want to say because I don't remember his mm. name for sure, who said that if you think that the blood of Ger that the land of Germany is soaked in Jewish blood now, wait. This he said hundreds of years ago. But if you look at German history, you see that Nuremberg and in different cities we were uh, constantly, every 10, 15, 20 years we were being expelled. What do you mean? How can you be expelled from the same town every 20 years? Mm -hmm. Because the Jews came back. They had no choice. So it, it really is, look, look, look at what we have here today in America. 50 years ago, 75 years ago, Orthodox Jewry was going to disappear. Orthodox rabbis were sending their children, including my cousin, to the JTS. Right. Because the only way to remain Orthodox in America was to uh, to go to JTS because conservative temples then demanded the rabbi be Orthodox. We were going to disappear. Now we have 100,000 kids in yeshivas in New York City alone. So there's no question that we, we you know, I haven't gone to Germany yet except to fly through. Right. Uh, but I think at this point I'm ready. I'm ready to go to Germany and see Jewish life blossoming in places that are just unimaginable. Was your mother in more than one concentration camp? Or? No. She uh, came. My father was multiple places, but not sure exactly. I have the names written now, but that's about it. But my mother came to Auschwitz on the second day of, of uh, Schuss. They were there for three, four months, and then they were sent to Germany to work in uh, Siemens. So she only got liberated um, in in late April, beginning of May. Mm -hmm. uh, she was still working there. Around this time of year? Around this time of year is when she was liberated. Uh, people think that everybody got liberated in, in January, right. but uh, the ones that were sent down got liberated very late. But compared to the Polish Jews, that was only uh, not even a year. Right. And it was hell. And my, as my cousin said uh, this week when I was by her, I was, went to see her shop. She says, it's hard to, for us to understand with the Polish Jews that, that there are any alive. How did they survive? How did they survive? What they went through. Right. Um, Leon Goldenberg is here. It's Yom HaShoah Today is a day to remember. And um, 
Now, now we could point to, thank God, children and grandchildren and generations that continue to thrive and survive. I remember a, uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this. I'm sure, because uh, I'm sure you had the, a, 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 it was a common experience for people uh, around that time. Um, it, it was very strange for Jewish children in yeshivas in the 1940s and 50s in the United States to have grandparents. It was a very strange thing. In fact, someone told me that they were the, they, because they had grandparents, they were the aberration. They had people in their class who didn't realize you could have a right. grandparent. And I'm sure you have went through the I same thing. I went through the same thing. Not only that, uh, we were, I only knew two people that had a grandparent. Right. One, each one had one. Right. One was a cousin who had a grandparent. It was something that we didn't even, we thought it, you know, when we were young, they just got to a certain age. When I was in second grade, I got friendly with a little boy. And I was a little boy, too. <laughs> and his mother came to, um, you know, help with lunch. So afterwards, he introduced me to his mother. And she was fluent in English. And after she walked away, I said, where did your mother learn to speak English? He says, my mother, she, she was, went to school here. She was born here. I said, a mommy born in America? <laughs> no such thing. <laughs> she says, and my grandparents were born here. I said, grandparents? You met your grandparents? I couldn't understand. I said, yeah, my grandparents, yeah. That, that, that. He had grandparents. The exception. It was, you know, he was an American kid, yeah. an American family. There was nobody I knew that had grandparents. Didn't exist. Unbelievable. Today, there are, t- there are times when you will see four, and sometimes I think even five, my, generations at a simcha. My mother-in-law has... Uh, about a dozen great great grandchildren unbelievable and she's just turning 90 incredible so it's not just financial luxury we're in we're also in this thank god this incredible familial luxury where we have people around us and generations who continue to sprout up uh, in front of us which again the generation of the Shoah certainly but even others never experienced well part of it is and that's one of the things that my mother once told me she had a um colon cancer operation uh, when she was, she had it twice at 80 and 85. And one time she called me in and she said to me, you know, I, I, it's a very good chance I won't survive the operation. Forget about the cancer. Right. <laughs> I want you to know, I have no tinnitus on the Rebbe I have no complaints to God. And I was flabbergasted. You lost your mother. You really lost your father. You lost three brothers. You lost the sister. You lost every single aunt and uncle. How can you have tinnitus? And she said, it's 50 years since the war. In the Altaheim, in the old country, that was an old person. God gave me a second life. Except for your father passing away, it's been a very good life. The first life, I have questions. This has been a very good life. No tinnitus. No tinnitus. Unbelievable. Incredible, basic, amuna shooter that we can't, we can't, we can't, we certainly, I certainly don't have it. Our own circumstances don't allow us to relate to this at all. But it's important to remember and to remind people and to remind ourselves and a day like today is the perfect time to do so. Uh, Leon Goldenberg, I thank you. I thank you very much helping us remember on this Yom HaShoah, reminding everybody, because you speak, and this is why I thought that 
you're the perfect guest and I was proven right. You speak to every aspect of the Jewish world. You speak to, to people who are, you know, the very observant community to those who are not affiliated. Every single person on that, uh, on that spectrum must make sure to remember and pass this message along to the next generation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And thank you for remembering. Yom HaShoah 5777. It is Holocaust Remembrance Day. You're listening to JM in the AM.
JM in the AM. I want to thank Leon Goldenberg who uh, visited us this morning at JM in the AM and uh, shared with us the story of his mother's survival and other relatives as well and reminded us how important it is to keep the uh, memory, the stories, the episodes, the the plight of Jews during the Holocaust uh, as active as possible. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, Yom HaShoah. Today is the day to, in fact, transmit that message to people around the world. Uh, Naftali Bennett, the education minister, joined March of the Living today in Eastern Europe to do just that, to participate in the program and to remember Jews, uh, Jews for their sacrifice and Jews for their heroism. Yom HaShoah was inaugurated back in 1953 by the Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, and the President of Israel, Yitzhak Ben-Svi. And... Um, And today we take the opportunity to uh, utilize Yom HaShoah to remember here at JM in the AM. Uh, the siren sounded earlier today in Israel, of course, reminding the uh, the residents of Israel of the importance of remembering. And... Um, And all through the state of Israel, in the Knesset, in school buildings, of course at Yad Vashem, all of this uh, continued to occur. All of the uh, commemorations, observances, ceremonies continued to happen all through the day. Yom HaShoah at JM and the AM as we continue. I thank you very much for tuning in. This is from the Heritage album, composed and arranged by Michael Isaacson and the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, Songs of the Shoah. Coming up at 9 o'clock this morning, right after JM and the AM, Mayor Weingarten, who has just minutes ago completed a Israel show dedicated to Yom HaShoah. He's in Israel. Mayor Weingarten is in Israel. He has just completed a program that we will air at 9 o'clock this morning, the Israel show on this Yom HaShoah, all coming up if you keep it here at the Nahum Siegel Network.
Rabbi Abraham Klausner is an example of an individual who went against accepted norms, who acted contrary to U.S. Army regulations to make a difference, to save lives. Rabbi Klausner entered the U.S. Army in 1944 and was placed at Dachau after its liberation in 1945. His true story is an astounding reminder that one person can make a difference. My name is Klausner, Abraham Klausner. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1915. Our class, which was the 1943 class, was rushed because we were designated as replacements for rabbis who were going into the chaplaincy corps. Academic year was over, I was accepted into the military. That would be in 1944. When uh, Dachau was overrun, the army immediately brought in uh, hospital units. It wasn't the kind of a liberation where you say you're free now and go wherever you want to go. The army came in and locked the camps immediately so that the people who were prisoners of the Nazis were now not prisoners but were confined. They were behind barbed wire and they were guards. Some got out of the camp during the hectic first days, but basically uh, the camps were locked. A great number of the people were ill. And a lot of them in the first days of liberation stuffed themselves with food and uh, whatever they could get their hands on. And this uh, turned out to be detrimental to them. Part of my job was to bury the dead. In the first days, the dead were laying all over the place, especially where the boxcars came in with them from different parts of Germany. During the day, the trucks would take the bodies out and place each one in a grave, and then I would come out in the evening and recite a service, say some words. But nobody was there. I was, I was the only one present, except a short while afterwards, one of the liberated asked me if he could come with me, and I would take him. Dachau, I felt strange. It was overwhelming. I was a bit envious of the doctors, nurses. At least they had some kind of expertise to do something. What was I going to do? I wasn't going to start preaching to them. I felt completely inadequate. And so I started to walk down the row, looked at each barrack, and finally I stopped at one decided I was going to walk into that barrack. The door led into a little kind of an alcove, and there they were. It was a desperate scene. The place had hardly an opening for light to come in. Nothing in it except shelves. I just stood there. I was wearing a chaplain's insignia, but no one seemed to pay any attention to me. It was a strange world. Figures were moving around uh, as if in a shadow. Finally, somebody walked over to me, stared at me, saw my insignia, and uh, simply asked me a question out of nowhere. Do you know my uncle in Toledo? So I kind of hemmed and hawed a bit and uh, said that I wasn't from Toledo. There was nothing I could do. 
another figure came, another question, and the questions fell into that kind of a pattern. They were asking me if I knew certain people. A voice came from one of the shelves. It was a thin, crying voice. Do you know my brother? I couldn't see the figure. It was too dark. The other figure seemed to move aside to let the voice come forward. And the voice began to tell me that he had a brother, came to the United States, and became a rabbi. As soon as he gave me the name, I said to him, I know your brother. He is here in Europe, and I'm going to bring him to you. That was the turning point in my life. I knew then when I walked out of that barracks that there was work to be done and I was going to do it. I then began to set goals for myself. I wanted to know who was in the camp. And so I got people together and we were going to collect the names. I had to get paper, I had to get all the materials necessary. child was born into this world in 1933 a blessing for a Jewish home in Frankfurt Germany and his father taught him olive bays he learned to read and write each night he heard his mother say these words to him Yosef my son the Lord our God is one. God is very near, Yosef, my dear. Yosef, my son, we are the chosen ones. Do not fear, we'll always be together. Yosef was a boy of nine in 1942. He had a secret hiding place like all young children do. Horrified, he saw them take his mom and dad away. Alone, he heard 
his mother's final words to him. Yosef, my son, take some food and run. God is very near, Yosef, my dear. Yosef, my son, we are the chosen ones. Do not fear, we'll always be together. To feel his hand on the western wall was a lifelong dream come true. He made it to Jerusalem, the city of the Jew. And he opened up his sitter as he had done each day. And he prayed to God for his mother and his father. And an old man stood there praying for a son he thought long dead. That voice, that's my father's voice, was all that Yosef said. And he looked into the old man's eyes. Tears came down his face, and he fell into his father's embrace. Yosef, my son, the Lord our God is one. Come, your mother's here, Yosef, my dear. Yosef, my son, a miracle has been done. From now on, we'll always be together. Yosef, my son, the Lord our God is one. God is very near, Yosef, my dear. Yosef, my son, we are the chosen ones. From now on, we'll always be together. From now on, we'll always be together. J.M. in the A.M., Moshe Yes, closing out a Yamasho observance for us with that classic, Yosef, my son. I thank you for listening in. It's day 13 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. Thank you for joining us for Yom HaShoah commemoration. Tomorrow, back to our regular format. It'll be Erev Rosh Chodesh. And um, Mayor Weingarten will commemorate Yom HaShoah minutes, actually just about a minute from now. Mayor Weingarten will commemorate Yom HaShoah from Israel uh, with a special edition of the Israel Show coming up for Yom HaShoah for Holocaust Remembrance Day next right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the Nahum Siegel Network, and of course on our beloved NSN app. Mayor Weingarten is next with the Israel Show, uh, completed just a few minutes ago for Yom HaShoah 5777. A regular Monday schedule after that. Plenty more tomorrow, starting at 6 a.m. It'll be Erev Rosh Chodesh, and we'll get back to our regular format tomorrow morning. Make sure to join us. Have a meaningful Monday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Sigal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>